0: We want to say thank you for your beautiful singing this morning, and as Brother Grant said, we're getting off to a good start. Let's continue that by opening our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We will read a portion of chapter 9 and chapter 10 this morning. I know that may be a little unusual, but I think it's important that we hear the public reading of Scripture. And uh, so we'll read this together. First Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Bicorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son, whose name was Saul, choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. Now through verse 3 through 14 it talks about these lost donkeys or asses of Kish and Saul and his servant goes to find them. They can't find them. And finally, the servant says, let's go to the, the prophet Samuel. So let's pick it up in verse 15. Now the Lord told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul come came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of, this same shall reign over my people." Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjaminite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor, and made them sit in the chief place among them that were bidden, which were about thirty persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold that which is left, set it before thee, and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. And they rose up early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us, and he passed on, but stand thou still a while, that I may know, that I may show thee the word of the Lord. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulchre in the border of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found, and lo thy father hath left the care of the asses, and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go on, "...forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute thee, and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands." After that, thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, that when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And notice the change that come upon Saul through these next few verses. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. And let it be that when these signs come unto thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings, and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings, seven days shalt thou tarry, till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, Behold, a company of prophets met him and the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it came to pass that when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets, then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same and one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the asses, and when we saw that they were, not, they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spoke, he told him not. And Samuel called <clears throat> all the people together unto the Lord to mispay and said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of all of them that oppress you. And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversaries and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. And when they sought him, they could not find him. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, If the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence, and when he stood among the people, he was higher than any man, any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the matter of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace.
1: Good morning. Brother Dale has asked for the reading of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, Having loved this present world and is departed into Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring with thee, bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord rebuke him, reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil week, work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thou diligence to come before winter. Ebulus greeteth thee, and Pudens and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with Thy Spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.
0: So we greet you again in in Jesus' name this morning as we've come to worship. And I was thinking, as Aaron talked about us being a witness to the Word of God, the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, that we are surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. A lot of witnesses testifying of the work of God in their lives. And we are called to do the same. I'm not a uh, horse racing fan, but I'd like to share the story of a horse that raced called Secretariat. Secretariat was... A horse that lived between 1970 and 1989. Secretary grew up to be a a fabulous racehorse. And probably many of you know more about this racehorse or maybe know more about it uh, than I do. But Secretary was the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 25 years. And he won it in... Somewhere there in the 70s, 70, 73, I think it was. But the Triple Crown, to win the Triple Crown, you have to be a three-year-old horse, and you have to win the Kentucky Derby, the Peakness Stakes, and the Belmont, uh, Stakes. Those three races. And each one of those races are a different length, different tracks, And a three-year-old horse is the only ones qualified to run in that race. And like I said, Secretary was the only, he only had one chance to do it. And so he won the Kentucky Derby. He won the Peakness Stakes. And then it come down to the Belmont Stakes. And two weeks before the big race, he lost the race. And all of the trainers and people began worried that he wasn't going to make it to the Belmont states. But they found out the reason he lost is he had an abscess in his mouth caused by something that might have been in his feed. And so they lanced it and they got him to heal up. And he come to the Belmont and he won that race, therefore winning the triple crown, the first horse, in twenty five years. Secretariat's racing record, he won he raced twenty one times. He had sixteen wins, three seconds, and one third. And if you add those up, it don't quite come to twenty one. But he was disqualified in a race because he bumped the horse beside him. And so there's some debate about all that too. But but what was unique about this horse is that when he come out of the the starting chute, whatever, uh, he would always be toward the back or he may be in last. He may start the race running in last place. And as the race progressed, he got faster and faster and faster. In fact, in the Belmont Stakes race where he won the Triple Crown, he started last. And on the first turn, which I think was a quarter mile, he had already passed most of the horses. And every quarter after that, he only ran faster and faster. And when he finished the race, he was 31 links ahead of the next horse. Which is like, a uh, length is 8 feet, so that would be about 250 feet ahead of the next one. In fact, if you would read some of the stories that some of his trainers and them were a little upset at the uh, jockey for continuing to prod the horse to run that fast once he was so far ahead. And yet, it wasn't the jockey, it was the horse. The horse loved to run. And in fact, the horse just, you put him on a track, that's what he was built for. He had it in him, he knew it, the horse did, that he was there to race. And he ran with all that he had. And the jockey many times when the horse would get in the lead and was running, he just lay the, the whip down and just let him go. And he did his own thing and he won the race. And when he won those races, it wasn't just by a head's length or something like that. Like that race was 31 lengths. Many of the others were thirty-one or two or three lengths ahead of the next. And this. And the second place horse was a good horse, too. He could run fast. He won races, but he could never outrun secretary. So how did he do this? He set records. In fact, that year he won the triple crown. He set a, a record at all three of those races. The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, and the Belmont Stakes. And those records still stand to today. But how did he do that? So, well, you know, he got a foot disease, a hoof disease, I guess would be the proper term. And they had to put him to sleep in 1989. And uh, they did an autopsy of this horse. And uh, they found out that all this horse's vital organs were just fine. They were normal. But when they come to his heart, It was two and a half times bigger than the normal heart of a a horse. Normal size of a horse heart is eight to nine pounds, depending on who you read after. Secretary's heart weighed 25 pounds. He had a heart to run. And all the valves and everything was normal. He wasn't medicated with drugs or anything else to get this big heart. He was created with a big heart. He was born to run. Not only did he have a heart that was larger than any other horses, but he also had a longer stride. That means he takes a bigger step. When he runs, he takes a bigger uh, step or stride there than most horses. And to you children, the way you can understand that is it's just like when a tall man like me walks beside a short man I take one step, they may take two. That was a trouble in our marriage. We had to, I had to slow down to, so that I didn't run ahead of Marcia. But we take different steps. And that's the way it was with Secretariat. He took a bigger stride than most other horses. And like I said, it wasn't because he was on drugs or anything. And so, as we go on then, after he quit racing, after he won the Triple Crown... They wanted to figure out how they could make money off of him, so they sold him to be a breeder. And they were the idea was that Secretary would, his offspring would be just like him. But it didn't work that way. A lot of his offspring did go on to win races, but none of them won the Triple Crown. If I I won't hold to that, but I don't think they did. The point is here: it was his heart not his genes that caused him to run. And that will play an important part as we go forward here this morning. So what's the last thing in this for us this morning? So what I want to get out of this is that Secretariat would start late. His finish wasn't the most impressive, but it was how he finished that counted. He won the race and that was the important part and that's what we want to think about this morning. It's not how we start the race, though that is important that we start the race in Jesus Christ this morning. But the most important thing is how we finish. And we, will, we have a new heart this morning as well. Jesus Christ has given us a new heart. That we might be able to finish well. So, what does it mean to finish well? You know, everybody will finish. And sometimes we say, well, we'll all die unless the Lord comes first. And we understand that. But I think if the rapture happens, that is a finish too. So, we will all finish the race. But we will not all finish it at the same time. Children may finish it different. Teenagers will finish it at a different time. And us older ones will finish it at a different time too. So there's all different stages. Young children die. Teenagers die in the middle of the prime of life. Adults die when it's time. But the the important thing is we recognize That we will all have a finish. We will not all finish the same time. So finishing well is not about works for salvation. We're not talking about that this morning. But finishing well is centered on our obedience to the Word of God. Only as we study and grow in God's Word and are obedient to that Word will we have a good finish. I want to give you two scriptures. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Paul says, Earnestly beholding the counsel said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And then he reemphasized that in Acts 24, verse 16. He says, And herein do I exercise Myself To have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That's how we finish well this morning. Just as Paul said, a conscience that is without offense before God and before men. And the only way you're going to live a life with a conscience that is void of offense before God and men is by obedience to the Word of God. And that's what we're called here for this morning. So we're going to go and talk about an Old Testament character who did not finish well. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and talk about a New Testament character that did finish well. And then I have six applications for each one of us. And this message this morning is about Saul and Saul. Saul in the Old Testament, Saul in the New Testament. We're going to go to 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and draw some verses from there as we look at the life of Saul. We read those chapters this morning because it's the, uh, the calling of this man. And we're going to look at Saul's journey here. Saul was a man who started right, but finished, didn't finish well. In the ninth chapter, verse 2, it says, and speaking of his father Kish, he had a son whose name was Saul, and a cho- choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. And from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. Saul was a handsome man. Saul was a tall man. The Bible says here that everybody else come to his shoulders. From his shoulders upward, he was taller. He could see out over everybody. It says he was a good man, goodlier man, and so forth. Nobody compared to Saul. That word goodly there means he was a very fine man. Not only in his stature, but probably his character as well. Gentlemen. And then we drop on over to chapter 10, verses 6 and 9. We find that Saul was a changed man. In verse 6 here we see it, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came up, will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. And verse 9 says, And it was so that when he had turned his back from Samuel, God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day. Here in this chapter, Samuel has laid upon Saul that he was going to be a prophet and he was going to prophesy that day. And we see that that all come to pass in verse 10 then and and when it speaks about a prophet here it's speaking of one who speaks God's word not necessarily going to predict what's going to happen in the future though that might be a ministry of a prophet but in this particular setting the word prophet means to speak God's word and as a The Holy Spirit works through me this morning, and I speak God's Word. In a sense, I'm the prophet. Also, I'll just share that in that chapter, Samuel said, or Saul told his servant they'd go see the seer. The seer and the prophet are the same individual. Just another title for it. And so we see that Saul was called there to prophesy and he prophesied with those prophets and their purpose is to instruct the people to live a life of faithfulness. And so he became one of those who prophesied. Saul also had great military victories. As a king, God enabled him to conquer the Philistines. God gave him the power to conquer the neighboring enemies there around him. And so we see that while he was in God's will and obedience, God prospered his life. But Saul had his own character problems. As we look at the very character of Saul, we find that he was a jealous man. We read later as he became king and and he uh, was having... Evil spirits trouble him. And he called David in to play the harp. And jealousy arose between him and David. And he sought to kill David. That's just one instance of his jealousy. You see it through his whole life as you read about him in 1 Samuel here. As the first king of Israel. Not only did he have a problem with jealousy. But jealousy can lead right down into anger. And so he became an angry man. And so he had to learn to deal with anger, which he never conquered. Another aspect of his character that was flawed was that Saul had to, struggled with being obedient. And we read there in that ninth chapter that Samuel told him to tarry seven days. And before Samuel got there to make the sacrifice, Saul went ahead. And offered to sacrifice himself. He said, we can't wait on Samuel. We've got to do something. Disobedience. Disobeyed Samuel and disobeyed God, which became a snare unto him. Saul was an insecure person. And this insecurity was manifest by a proud spirit. He was a very proud man. And therefore, see, when, he, when the pride comes up, you become proud. Then you become insecure. Because of your insecurity, pride leads into jealousy and it just goes on and on. And you can just see it develop in Saul's life. So he was jealous, angry, disobedient, an insecure person, developed into a spirit of pride And the fourth thing I want to mention about Saul's character is that he just made wrong choices in life. He made unreasonable promises or vows. Remember that day when he promised that, or made a vow that no man should eat? And whoever did eat anything would be killed? And his son Jonathan actually ate the honey, and they were going to kill him. Saul was going to kill him for the sake of the vow. And the the men, the army uh, rescued Jonathan from that. But he made a foolish vow. Shows he lacked wisdom. Furthermore, you read on in his life toward the end that he didn't turn to God, but he went to a witch. He had already condemned all the witches in the country and that they were to be killed. And yet in his depressed, Evil state there. What did he do? He turned and went to the witch of Endor. So he made poor choices in life. And then we're going to see that Saul is rejected by God. We see this journey that started out so beautiful, so wonderful. And we see these flawed character qualities coming forth. Then we see the rejection of God. This is only as his journey is spiraling downward. Saul was rejected by God because of his disobedience to God. We can read about that. We're not going to all these scriptures for the sake of time. But in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, there's where he made that sacrifice. And Samuel says it is better to obey than to sacrifice. And God rejected him there, and I think, as that passage goes on, that Samuel showed Saul that the kingdom would be rent from him. In First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, Saul dealt with an evil spirit. This evil spirit troubled him over and over. The third uh, passage of God rejecting him is like we've mentioned. Saul consults a witch. 1 Samuel 28, verse 7. And then finally, the fourth one, Saul takes his own life. 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, Saul defeated in battle. He, He took his own life and was killed there. So those are the rejections and the downward spiral of the life of Saul. And so we see then that Saul's life ends in a failure. And because Saul failed to follow the commandment of the Lord, the kingdom was taken from him. The disobedience to God. And God had promised to him in 1 Samuel 13, I believe it is, that God, Samuel told Saul that if you will be obedient to the Word of God, your kingdom would be established forever. Here was the very first king of Israel. And Samuel tells him, If you will follow all the commands of the Lord and keep His commandments, be obedient to them, then you will have a son to set on the throne forever. That was quite a promise. And any king would probably delight to have that. But somehow Saul didn't get the picture. And then Saul was defeated by the Philistines and he and his sons all died the same day and only if he had obeyed the Lord could one of those sons have sat upon the throne. So we see that while he started out good as a handsome, goodly man, taller than everyone else, everything coming to him, but he ended up in defeat taking his own life. And everything that could have been a bright future was lost forever. So that's the example of a life that started well, but did not finish well. Now let's go to the New Testament. We're going to look at an example of one who did not start so well maybe and ended up very well. And that is Saul or Paul. And we can read about him in Acts chapter 9 and different accounts. But I want to go to Acts 26. <clears throat> and we're going to get the background of uh, Saul here in this chapter. In Acts 26, in verses 4-5, through 5, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. If they could testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So as we consider the life of Paul, he was a very devout Pharisee. This is his religious identity. His and he he was the most devout person in that religion of the Pharisees. He did everything. And you could go into Philippians chapter 3, I believe it's there. He talks about all of those things, uh, who he was. Philippians 3, verses 4 and 6. He states that reason. Uh, he said he could boast in the flesh because he was a uh, circumcised. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I want to just insert right here that both of these Sauls were of the tribe of Benjamin. Just think about that. So King Saul and then Saul that later become Paul. They were they were cousins in one sense. They go back to the same Benjaminite. So he was a Benjamite concerning the law. He was a Pharisee. The best there was of the keeping of the law. He was zealous, persecuting the church, persecuting the way of a this new way that was against the law and regarding righteousness in the law, he was blameless. So under the sect of the Pharisees, he was a perfect individual. We go on to Acts 22. I want to read a couple of verses. He says, Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. He had the best teaching there was. This Gamaliel person was uh, well respected and he's the one that stood up in the council later when they were trying, I think Peter and John maybe were there. But Paul had the very best. And he says to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 that I was exceedingly above many in the tradition of my fathers. So we would look at that and say he had the best. He was the best. He had the best degrees after his name. Whatever he could obtain in that religion, he had it. And then we go on and we find that's his background. Then we find that Paul was persecuting the church. Here in chapter 26, it begins in verse 11. He says, and I I want to start in verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So as the Pharisee, he thought that he was to do that which would be contrary to Jesus, against him. That was his basis for the persecution. Which things I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priest, And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. So he consented and he even testified against them. And verse 11 says, And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. And then it goes on about him going to Damascus but the background there tells us about his justification for his persecution and what all he did there he thought it was the proper thing to destroy this movement of Jesus of this fellow Jesus and he not only had these prisoners shut up in prison and these believers shut up in prison but he testified against them. When their trial came up, he condemned them. He testified against them. And he says that he so much that he compelled them to blaspheme. And so if you take that on the surface, you would think that these believers probably blaspheme. But if you the uh, the looking at the verb tense here of compelled them to blaspheme, the tense of that verb Leaves the room, or leaves room for the thought that he was not successful. So, the way it's written in the Hebrew or the original Greek, whatever, uh, would give you the thought that he wasn't really successful in causing those believers to blaspheme. And we know a lot of them were martyred, so we know they didn't do that. It also says here he was exceedingly mad against them. And that exceedingly mad is just being furious or beside himself with rage. And I hope none of us in here have ever been that mad. I'll give you the space you can get mad a little bit, but not exceedingly mad. He was just beside himself. And I think we see that manifest in the world around us today in the the shootings and the road rage or whatever that happens, people just get beside themselves with anger. And anger takes over. And they become a different person altogether. So from persecuting the church, then Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you, we can go there to Acts and maybe for the sake of time. Well, let's just turn there. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 3 says, As he journeyed, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there was a light, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And I hope every one of us have said, Lord, what will you have me to do? But not having to be struck down or uh, struck there on the road to Damascus with those kind of intentions. But Paul saw the Lord. And when the Lord spoke to him, he knew. He says, Who art thou, Lord? Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? He had an understanding. He recognized that this bright light from heaven was the Lord Himself. Paul became a changed man forever. He became a new man. Remember we read back in Samuel that that Saul became a new man also. So just be Well, we'll leave that. But Saul became a new man and he went from the chief of sinners to the Apostle of the Gentiles. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And God gave him a mission. That he would be the Apostle to the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11 verse 13. Let me read that verse. For I speak to you Gentiles. inasmuch as I am the Apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. Him writing to Romans. Just reinstated. That this is the mission God gave him. Acts 26 verse 17 and 18 says that Delivering delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins An inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. So this is the ministry that God gave to Paul when he met him there on the road to Damascus. You will become the apostle to the Gentiles. So the very people he was persecuting, now he was called to go and preach the gospel to them. And even beyond that. In verse 19 of this 26th chapter is the message that Paul was to take. He was to preach the Gospel that would open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, and from the power of Satan unto God. That was the message. He was to change their hearts, release them from the bondage of Satan And to become children of God, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins. That they would have salvation just like the Jew would. And for what purpose? That they might have an inheritance among the sanctified that is in Christ Jesus. And that's you and I today. We are the sanctified in Christ Jesus, and we have that same inheritance as well. And you know what? Paul was called to do that. And he tells Timothy, as his faithful, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He saw the vision of the Lord, what the Lord told him, and he was obedient to it. Remember to finish well is to be obedient to the Word of God. And because he exercised that ministry with all his power, He could tell Timothy in the chapter that Brother David read that I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, and I have kept the faith. He did not waver in his call to preach. Therefore, he had that confidence in knowing that he had completed his calling and service to the Lord. And that we have a calling this morning and we need to know that we are Confident that we are fulfilling that calling, as well. So as we go to First or Second Timothy four, Paul here could write at the end of his life that he was ready to die because he had finished the work the Lord had given him. With confidence, he could say that. That is finishing well. And I trust this morning that every one of us, when we come to that point, if we have that opportunity or if we're in that situation, we hopefully we're raptured and don't have to lay on a bed thinking about dying. But if we do, that we can have peace and confidence knowing we have fulfilled what God called us to do. Okay, let's look at six points that we can apply to our daily life. How do we finish well? Well, it starts with a new heart. This isn't one of the points. I'm just leading up to it. But it starts with a new heart. We saw it with the the racehorse. It had a different heart than everyone else. Saul was given a new heart. Paul saw the light of the Lord and he was a changed man. So the conclusion can be that how we finish is simply based upon our heart. It's a heart issue this morning. And trusting that your heart is right with the Lord. So, the first point to finish well involves our response to Jesus. And I think I'm looking at a group of people this morning that have responded to that. What is your response to Jesus? Paul says in verse 6 here of this chapter. For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew the importance of being ready and that his life was drawing to a close. And I take this being ready here is his commitment to Jesus Christ. He was committed and he was ready to die. He knew where he stood. Are you ready this morning? I want to just break out a couple words here that he says <clears throat> in verse 6. He uses a unique word in departure. Paul says, my departure is at hand. This word uh, gives us a picture of unyoking an animal from a plow or a cart. Setting something loose. Now, probably most of us here have never hooked a, a horse to a cart or a donkey to a cart or whatever. But in the old days, I guess they had yokes and they put the yoke on the horse's neck and the harnesses hooked it. But departure would mean that you set that animal free. When a uh, farmer come in at night and he had been plowing with a horse all day, well, he released the horse from the plow that it could rest that night and that's what this word meaning means another meaning of this word departure would be to loose the rope holding a ship to the dock so if you were going to go on a cruise and sail there is a departure time for the ship to leave and when that time comes the shoreman loosen release the rope that's tied to the pier and it's taken into the ship and the ship is free to sail and that's what Paul's saying here my departure my time of free sailing is here going to sail from this world into the heavenly world another meaning of this word is loosening the bonds of a prisoner and setting them free So, you know, prisoners were in prison cells and they were bound with chains or ropes or whatever to the wall, to the floor, to the ceiling. And so when you would release those chains, release those ropes, you set them free. So I think we can see, and perhaps this is probably a good use here, that we as prisoners of sin have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have in a sense, been departed from that to be set free to serve Him. And that's the word that Paul used here when he was talking about my departure is at hand. I'm going to be set free from this whole world. All the persecution he went through, read about it in Second uh, Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11. All the trials he went through and all of that. I'm going to be set free. We're all someday going to be set free from this earthly body And receive a glorious body in the sky to be with him forever. So that brings us to the thought then in this verse that there's death. As we finishing well in this departure, that means there must be death. And I just want to encourage us this morning to remember death is not the end of all things. Death is the beginning. When we die, it isn't all over. It's only the eternity of beginning that waits before us. An eternity of life everlasting ahead of us. Death only means it's the end of all this labor, toil, turmoil. But an eternity waits every one of us free from all sin and all of that. And so we this morning have that choice. Of where we will spend eternity. There's only two places. We're all aware of it. Heaven or hell. And whatever we choose. We have that choice to make this morning. That's why Paul used this word departure. It's the setting loose from this earth. To the eternal state as we stated. And so the question I have for you this morning. Is what is your response to Jesus? Our response to Jesus needs to be more than just believing faith. You could say, well, I believe. I believe in Jesus. Well, that's true. That's a good start. But that's all it is, is a start. And I want to encourage us this morning. I want to challenge us this morning to move beyond believing faith. We need to go to a living, obedient, everyday life faith. One that is exercised daily in our life. That we go beyond just saying, well, I believe. It is a lifestyle. It is a life of serving Him. So let's move on to application number two. That was our response to Jesus. The second one is, to finish well involves a focused life. Philippians chapter 3 verse 13 says, but this one thing I do for getting Those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The focus life. Paul says there's only one thing that he was concerned about. He let everything else go. Focus on Jesus Christ and His ministry of service to Him. What are you focusing on today? What's your focus Are you focused on Jesus Christ or is it on something else? We all have things that come into our life that take our time, take our energy, but what is our real focus in life? What are those things that take your focus off of Jesus Christ? Just the busyness of life? Programs? Ministries? Things to do? Self-desires? You know... What comes in your life that robs you of your focus to follow Jesus Christ. So let's be Christ-focused people. Number three, to finish well involves a disciplined life. We quoted this scripture earlier, but Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is before us. So this disciplined life is that we must get rid of whatever is hindering us in our walk with Jesus. You will have to examine your own life, your own walk, and decide what that is. But as we look at this word discipline, a lot of times we think that as being negative. Discipline is correction and maybe punishment. And so we think of the word discipline as being a negative word and we kind of push it aside and don't ever use that word. But really, in the very beginning, the first usage of the word discipline was a very positive word. The word actually means more than just correction or punishment, but it means education. So, I want you to think about even in your correction and uh punishment, if that's kind of a harsh word, but uh, I think you know what I mean that even in that, you would educate as well. so when you correct someone it's not just because they did something wrong, but it's also to educate them how to do better. It also carries the meaning to Train or develop by instruction. And exercise especially in self-control. Like if I wanted to discipline myself, I have to train and, and uh, exercise self-control in my own life. That would be a discipline for me. If uh, I, I don't think I could ever do it, but let's just say if I decide I was going to quit eating ice cream, that would be a big challenge, but uh, that would be a type of discipline for myself. I'm going to discipline myself to act, self-control to not eat ice cream. I don't think I could last. But uh, you get, I think you get the picture of this training there. Training uh, involves correction. It molds. It perfects the moral character of the individual. It's not just a... Training and education of getting more knowledge, while that is important. But this training actually corrects and it molds the character of the individual. So how well do we discipline our own lives? What's our spiritual training program that we're going through? You know, one time, uh, thinking about going through programs and training yourself, Years ago, when our boys were in Young Folks, one of them, uh, and they were kind of in college, and I realized I need to spend more time with my sons. And so one of them, I, I thought, well, what could we do together? And we would take time and do this activity together on a regular basis. And so I let him choose, and he chose to take a weight training class at J.C., weight lifting. Oh, okay. That sounds like fun. Quite a bit younger than I am today, obviously. But, uh, so we signed up for Modesto Junior College weight training class, and we went there on Tuesday night, and we went up there in this big weight room, all these machines and weights, and we exercised, we pumped it, uh, weights, I guess is the way you say that, Did all that, and we did it on Tuesday night. I think we came back on Thursday night, and then we started another week. I always noticed that on Wednesday or Friday when i go to work, my office was upstairs, and I had to climb a flight of stairs, that on Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, it was a little more painful to get up those steps than the day before. And so you realize that this training and working out, there's pain that goes with it. There's self-sacrifice. And so that's the way it is in our life. Just like that weight training class. We, yeah, you go to build up muscles, but it's going to hurt before the muscles get built up. And it, was, it turned out to be a good experience. But it, I did notice that, that climbing those stairs, that the, your leg muscles, they, they let you know they were there. And that's what training does. It takes a little pain, takes a little effort, but it's worth it in the end. Does your training in your life involve pain? What are the sacrifices you're willing to make to draw closer to the Lord? What am I willing to give up that the Holy Spirit will be pleased to dwell in this body? You know, the Romans says in Romans 12:1. That no, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice every day. And you think about that. God doesn't need a body. Jesus Christ doesn't need a body. He has His body. But the Holy Spirit needs your body to dwell in. And every day, He wants to dwell in your body. So we looked at a response to Jesus, focused life, a disciplined life. The fourth one is, finishing well involves having a teachable spirit. Verse 13 here says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Paul was simply saying here that when you come and you're going to bring my coat, my warm clothes, to keep me warm in this prison. But most important, bring my books. Bring my study books. I want my, he says, all the books, the scrolls, and the parchments. At his end of his life, he was still desiring to learn and grow about, uh, in his knowledge about God. He was willing to be uh, teachable. He was seeking and willing to learn to the very end of his life. He told Timothy in chapter 2, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Building our lives on God's Word. And God never said that when you reach 50 or 65 or whatever, you can just put the Bible on the shelf, you've done it all. But He says daily, every day, until I call you home. Be willing to receive instruction. Never quit learning. Proverbs 1.5 says. A wise man will ever be learning. Proverbs 23 verse 12. Apply thine heart unto instruction. Psalm 25 verses 4 and 5. Says teach me and lead me. All of these scriptures. Pointing to the fact that. We are to be teachable and learning. Until the day God calls us home. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to teach you today? Sometimes I just have to sit and let the Spirit work. and Listen to Him teach us. We have to do that. Point number five. To finish well involves action. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So James tells us that we have to be a doer of the word of God and not just a hearer. So what is a doer? One form of this word is, carries the characterization of a whole personal, personality or all of a person's inner being, his mind, his soul, his spirit, and his emotions. The point being, not only learning God's Word, but faithful and continual obedience to it. it takes, we've all heard we've got to get it from the head to the heart. And so it takes obedience to that Word of God not only knowing it, but living it. And the word hearer is an interesting word. It actually means a, uh, a person who would sit in an audience, listen to the speaker, but they're not accountable for what they hear. And the example of that would be a, um, in a college class. I never took very many college classes, but... Uh, I understand there can be a big room, anywhere from 50 to 200 students in there, and the speaker's there. And he lectures for an hour, hour and a half, and uh, the students take notes, and then they go uh, to their next class. But a hearer would be one who would actually audit that class. So he'd come in and sit in the classroom with all the other students and just sit there and listen. And then go, and he was not accountable for what he heard. He didn't have to have a test and, at the end of the semester or anything. He, It didn't mean anything to him. That is a hearer. And I trust this morning that as you all sit here, that you are more than hearers, but a doers of the Word of God. You're not here just to audit. If you're here to probably find the critical points of this morning, there would probably be pages of stuff you can write down. He didn't. Preach this all well, his English isn't always correct, he didn't read right, didn't say that correctly. But I hope you are a doer, one who is obedient to the Word of God. And that's what James is calling to. Our lives are to be examples of uh, obedience to the Word of God. See there, I made a mistake. I thought I had six, I only have five uh, points here. So we've been through the five points here to respond to Jesus, to have the focused life, to have a disciplined life, to have a teachable spirit, and it involves action. That's living. That's the witness. That's the everyday life. And so in conclusion this morning, I just want to encourage each one of us to faithfully, every day, with confidence live confident with confidence knowing that when we depart this life we can finish well and that all takes a new heart and god is happy to give you a new heart may god bless you as you run the race of life